Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, we're live. Gentlemen, welcome to another Resolve Riffs Happy Hour. Good to be here. Cheers, Cheers to everybody. Cheers. I'm, yeah. I'm having Cheers, a nice boys. Caribbean rum today. Huh. What, do you, what are you guys uh, enjoying? Straight bourbon whiskey. Having a good time. IPA. Oh. Nice. Everyone's in character. Um, Everyone, yeah, get in character, please, if you don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure now, what that character before is. Before we get started, I just do want to remind everybody out there that these uh, Resolve Riffs are for entertainment purposes. If you're going to be pursuing uh, investment advice of any kind, get that from a professional, not from the scallywags on this particular show. And um, enjoy. <laughs> enjoy. I'm going to turn it over to uh, Adam Butler to do the intros, et cetera, and away we go. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I'm going to lean on Brian to introduce or at least give his own background. But we today we've got Brian Portnoy, uh, our friend from our uh, our, our uh, esteemed Dungeons and Dragons group, but uh, also an expert in a field that uh, we wanted to highlight today, which was um, the idea of manager selection, manager evaluation and selection, and just kind of dovetailing off a recently published paper by uh, Goylan Wahal, who've uh, published lots of um, literature in this in this area. And Brian's background, we thought, made him uniquely qualified to weigh in on this discussion. So um, maybe Brian, just give us the the two or three minute overview on why you might have something intelligence to say on this, on this topic. <laughs> well, it was a good question until you loaded it with intelligent. <laughs> um, yeah. I, so my background um, that's relevant here is that for most of my time in finance, going back to the late nineties, early two thousands was in manager selection. I mean, I do a lot of that, a lot of stuff now with uh, behavioral finance and social psychology and fun stuff like that. But, um, you know, I started as a mutual fund analyst, uh, portfolio manager evaluator at Morningstar in 2000. And, um, you know, some of the luminaries from that group, Christine Benz and Jeff Patak and the current CEO, Kunal Kapoor, I mean, we all sat three feet from each other. And uh, I learned a ton from those guys and, and many others. And I went from there, which was just sort of arm's length analysis, into the world of actual client capital allocation. So I was sharing with you guys before we hit record that back in the late 90s, early 2000s, Chicago was the global hub for funded hedge funds investing. There was like 80 billion in capital, uh, fund of funds capital within like uh, four or five blocks of each other. So I, I was, um, so the foot traffic of people coming through town, the managers that you would see, the access to the prime brokers and cap intro, it was, it was pretty spectacular. Um, and I was at a, a firm that no longer exists, um, which we can get into why in terms of the value of manager selection, but uh, a firm called Mesero Advanced Strategies. And um, at peak, I think we had 14 or 16 billion in assets, um, almost all pension fund, um, 
uh, pension and insurance uh, split 50-50 between U.S. And, and international investors. So sovereign wealth funds in Asia and Europe, pension funds from all over the world. And uh, for a period of time, uh, I was head of um, fund manager, hedge fund manager research for them. So I had a team of like 20 or 22 analysts that I oversaw. We had a portfolio of our, our, our diversified fund of funds had 60 or 65 positions. Um, so, you know, we had a team that was devoted to ongoing manager due diligence, as well as a team that was devoted to sourcing new ideas for the portfolio based on our own asset allocation needs, what just, you know, sort of from a supply side who was coming down the pike. So, you know, for a long period of time, all I did, you know, 24 seven was evaluate managers and then tie a bow around it. I, I, I wrote a book in 2014 called The Investor's Paradox, which kind of applied some of my early, early connections in behavioral finance to what's involved with picking good fund managers. And that book was sort of the beginning of the beginning of like the next phase of my career, which is, you know, as you guys know now, like very different than what it was. I'm not sitting at an investment firm allocating client capital. Um, you know, I'm doing more on the decision making and, and wealth management front. So nice. So yeah. um, I assume that the lessons learned from your time at Morningstar were directly applicable to your experience at Mesero or, I mean, what was yeah. the evolution of thought in terms of manager evaluation selection from that journey? Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I hadn't thought about this for a while, but the, 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 the question creates a, a good opening for an important topic, which is sort of at the time, you know, there was this bright line drawn between mutual funds and hedge funds. So, you know, you had the mutual fund world, that was style box oriented. I mean, keep in mind, style box wasn't invented until 1993, 1994. Um, and Morningstar's offices and Hyde Park are about seven miles away from each other. And the creation of Fama French and the style box, not the creation of Fama French, the, the, the classic papers from the late 80s and early 90s that they wrote, um, the opposite of a coincidence with the creation of the style box, big cap, small cap, growth, value, because prior to 92 or 93, Morningstar had a category called equities. And they had another category called fixed income. And so prior to 92 or so, if you had a large cap growth fund and a small cap value fund that were, um, you know, doing completely different things in opposite ends of the market, they would still get their quote unquote star rating based on their, you know, performance, risk adjusted performance relative to that entire universe. And so, you know, there was sort of a Heisenberg um, event in the early to mid 90s with Morningstar picking up the academic research, creating the uh, style box, which in turn created a whole new production engine at the mutual fund factories, which created, you know, all these style based investment products. Fast forward for me 10-ish years, going from mutual funds to hedge funds, there was some question as to, okay, those are totally different asset classes. And what occurred to me like really early on is that they were actually just, everyone's taking the same risk within stock and bond and, and stock and bond markets primarily, but you know other asset classes, whether it be currencies or commodities, um, it's just that in the alternative space or hedge fund space, 
the the liberty or freedom to you know go in a lot of different directions was much much uh, you know much bigger. So you can be long or short. You can be highly levered. You can be under levered and be sitting in a bunch of cash. You can be straight cash securities, or you can have you know own a whole variety of derivatives, or invest in nothing but derivatives, and so on and so forth. But you know what occurred to me, and it was really the one of the main points I tried to make in the investor's paradox, which I wrote you know, at this point eight plus years ago, um, is that it's really just spectrums of risk that any um, portfolio manager or risk taker is taking, and you need to sort of evaluate them on on their own terms. So for me, the 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 transition was pretty seamless. Cosmetically, there were some eyebrows raised as to Oh wait, mutual funds and hedge funds. You can't you can't do both. Those are different and they're just the opposite of different. They're exactly the same. So a framework that I've been developing um and it's not it's not particularly novel, but I think it's useful is that alpha eventually becomes beta, right? And so, you know, you've got this you start at Morningstar, it's not even style boxes and, you know, so let's set aside some whatever discussion about whether the style boxes reflect the research from Pharma French, but you've got now you've got style boxes, so you yeah. can now sort of theoretically decompose um, the equity universe, especially into um, risk from different categories, right? So growth and value, large, small, and mid, um, or core, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so. I don't know if that's kind of, that's not really alpha, like uh, exposure to growth or va- maybe, you know, value at some point was considered alpha. And I think now there's a, a lot more debate about whether sort of traditional value is considered alpha or subsumed by some kind of systematic value factor. But the evolution of, you know, adding more explanatory variables or factors yep. to the zoo, all of a sudden you're able to explain retrospectively a larger proportion of the variance in returns for across mm-hmm. funds. So was there, was that a direct experience that you had that over the, over time you added more dimensions of explanatory power, more factors or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so what was alpha in tw- 2000 and in eight was much more sort of beta in 2012 or, you know, that, that, trajectory generally played out? Um, I, I actually have receipts. I can, I'm can. i not going to show people my actual scribbles, but what I wrote down before the call as I was reading this Goyle and Mahalt paper, the relevance of manager selection in the twilight of manager alpha and the dawn of the factor zoo. I, I was, you know. I, I that's kind of where you were or that's where we are? Like that's where you were that, when? That, that's you know, where we are now. Okay. Look, you know, starting in 2000, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, know my ass from an elbow as it related to mutual funds and, and how to do any of this. And, you know, hopefully I got trained up pretty good to, you know, ask some, some good questions, but, um, um, you know, at least cr- I'll comment on my career before we can talk about the industry. For me, it was just learning the ropes. It's like, oh, you've got, I, I didn't have a good sense of, of market history. Um, or I should say investment strategy history as it related to the style boxes when I first got going at, at, at Morningstar and for the four years um, that I was there. Um, and and then going from there to um, 
you know, to, to Mesero and to the hedge fund space generally, you know, I, I recall sharing with someone once that it was like going from that tiny room uh, in the Willy Wonka movie, that tiny room when they first walk in uh, to the chocolate factory to when he opens the little door that's actually a massive door to the room with the lolly, lollipop trees and the chocolate river. I mean, it's just like massive variety of stuff. And so it was pretty easy and comfortable to think about alpha because there were so many moving pieces. Um, I think one of the, and I really, you know, I want to get your guys' thoughts as well, but, you know, when I fast forward from that period, 2004, 2005, when things were just ripping, I mean, we were bringing in $200 million a month from pension funds to build portfolios of hedge funds. Yeah, I mean, those were the glory days of fund of hedge funds, right? Oh, my God. It was, yeah. it was, um, it was out of control. Um, and then you throw in sort of the elixir of the prime brokers and cap intro groups with Ill unlimited budgets. And those are dangerous times. Um, but, you know, what occurred to me, and it probably, not probably, it does explain in part why I've moved my career in the way that I have over the last five or six years, is that a lot of that wasn't alpha. A lot of that was, in fact, factor selection or some sort of exposure management that if you could quantify and codify, um, you are recognizing that beta turns into alpha. So if you take, was it 08 or 11 that AQR you know, put out the piece that alpha is just beta waiting to be discovered, I think that's one of the most important pieces ever written um, mm -hmm. in investment strategy history. Um, and then when I was at, you know, Magnetar, uh, more recently, you know, we wrote a white paper that sort of took part of that core idea and, and did a lot more with it. But if you look at the forms of risk, market risk that, um, uh, um, that investors have taken going back a century, even to the creation of treasury bonds and the quote unquote risk-free rates over time that unique and interesting form of exposure, which you could refer to in a lot of cases as manager skill, it's actually just something that hasn't been fully extracted and amplified yet, because once it does, then it does move more from skill per se to, um, you know, to beta. Uh, and now where I think we're at um, in 2020 is, you know, it's real. It, we've thin sliced things to the point where it's really hard to talk about alpha per se, especially in the context of manager selection. And so I think, you know, coming full circle on my old world of fund of funds, that world's not disappeared, but it has dried up. I mean, there's a handful of really big firms, Blackstone, Grosvenor, a few others that have massive portfolios uh, of underlying hedge funds. But a lot of the old Chicago shops have literally gone out of business a lot of other firms um, are a fraction of the size that they were, and to the extent that they're still in business, they have crap fees. Um, and that's because the ability to select manager skill isn't really a thing anymore because it might be the case that managers don't deliver skill. What they do is c deliver certain well-articulated factor exposures consistently and at scale. Um, in some ways, those are the same thing, but in another way, from a commercial venture point of view, they're totally different. Yeah. Well, you know, Alpha, I, I, I think Alpha can reasonably be described as sources of return that you can't access cheaply. 
right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a sophisticated hedge fund with um, either domain experts, if the alpha happens to be sort of low capacity or opportunistic, like you've got a mortgage desk, which has got, you know, better connections in a mortgage market. So you know where the liquidity is, you know who the four sellers are, and you can eke out alpha in the mortgage, uh, I'm sorry, not the, mor- yeah, the mortgage space or the, um, you know, whatever, some, yeah. some other um, sort of is Yeah. Um, then that is something that not everybody can access because it, you know, you've got whatever it is, an informational edge or experiential edge or, you know, flow yeah. edge or something. But in terms of like scalable liquid alpha, um, I, I'm sympathetic to the fact that until very recently, even though the, academically some of these anomalies had been published and we, you know, the underlying mechanics were out in the open for anyone to see, mm-hmm. the vast majority of investors could not access those sources of return with liquidity and and at reasonable economics, right? And so until a Vanguard or an iShares or, you know, the ETF industry or some sort of index mutual fund group decides that they're going to offer these systematic sources of return, these factor returns more cheaply um, and with appropriate liquidity or in a vehicle that an average investor can, can access, then for an average investor, those sources of return are actually alpha because they can't access it cheaply, cheaply themselves. Right. So, you know, some of it's just like structural, the, some of the rules around 40 act products have have changed over time and allowed yeah. for different types of strategies to be offered to retail. Obviously the indexed, the indexing movement has made a real difference, uh, especially when paired with the ETF structure. So a lot of it was like that the structures themselves changed to provide access to what was previously considered alpha mm-hmm. to smaller investors. And so, you know, part of it's what's published and, and what people know about, but the other part is what's accessible or what you can get access to for cheap. I generally agree. And, and Mobison wrote a great article or white paper on this a few months ago in terms of the different types of alpha or skill that are available generally and, and what the trends have been. And I, if I recall correctly, um, I mean, I read it when it came out, but I, I think the, the era of having an informational edge such that you understand what Google's profits are going to be or, you know, whether uh, a food company is going to sell more cereal than, than they did in the past or, or something like that. Um, hard to point to that as sort of we used to not that long ago as, you know, pure alpha having that informational edge. I do think that what you're talking about in terms of structural alpha, um, whether it be access um, or just understanding how these complex structures might work, what you know, something in the MBS stack or something in real, you know, something else in real estate world. Um, yeah, there, there's, there is, and will remain many interesting things to do and so if if you're defining adam if you're defining that as alpha there's still plenty of alpha to 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 be had the question that you'd want to bolt on or i'd want to bolt on as a private investor now is what premium am i getting from that 
uh, combination of complexity and illiquidity. And that's where the due diligence comes in. Um, and so there's still a lot of good work to be done there. Um, but it's not like it used to be five, let alone 10 or 15 years ago when that nature of due diligence and that search for alpha felt and, you know, very different than the way it feels right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. By the way, for those who don't know, um, Richard has a bit of a background um, in manager selection, at least touched on it um, for a while there with your pension career. Richard, maybe just 30 seconds on that and and um, any takeaways that you had or in giving some thought before this conversation, uh, lessons yeah, learned. For sure. Yeah, at a previous life, still back in Brazil, I was a portfolio manager managing a uh, basically a local equities portfolio. Uh, but we did have an opportunity to, to uh, outsource part of that AUM towards third-party managers for a number of reasons. And we did begin a... Uh, Something of a, it was mostly a quantitative uh, screening process with some qualitative aspects to it. And uh, there was a, when you sent me that paper to start reading up and, and, and the, the two themes, I mean, one is pretty obvious. I mean, it stands to reason that as much as we say past performance isn't indicative of future returns, everybody looks at, at past performance and hopes that there's some consistency there. But uh, the second aspect to it, which is the, uh, who you know and the connections and how those might uh, play a role reminded me of an anecdote of uh, deciding across some of these managers. And uh, we knew that there was one manager that was supposed to be a front runner because of good connections. And uh, after going through the process for, for because of the criteria, which is decided that uh, it wasn't a good fit. Uh, and we went with, uh, I believe two, or three other managers, but then the analyst and the team, uh, I think a couple of days later, just received the form with the the well-connected manager for an allocation on his desk, and uh, that was pretty telling of uh, <laughs> where we were supposed to lean there. So it was, it was quite interesting. And that message, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a. I think all of us know to some degree that. <clears throat> It's, it's not very surprising, some of the findings, he, even though, as uh, as Brian was pointing out earlier when we were offline, that uh, the connection criteria that they use is quite thin. But I think we all know that it does play some role. Sometimes it can be quite dramatic, but at least some sort of, and it stands to reason, right? If you if it, If everything else is equal, if you know the manager, however misplaced that knowledge might be in terms of it not translating into a, a knowledge of the process, but human behavior kind of leans us toward, uh, I know the guy he's, you know, he's. Well, familiarity, it's yeah, the familiarity, familiarity breeds yeah. trust, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you know, if you're yeah. a person and you've heard their story and you know, their background, even though you haven't maybe given equal credence to the stories and backgrounds of other um, people who are bidding for this business or other firms that are bidding for this business, um, you know, you just, you're going to prefer the, the person that you know, that you know, well, right. And I think just again, like we're referring to this paper called, um, what is it? Choosing investment managers. Right. And, um, so Goyle and Wahal, they studied, the factors that explain 
manager selection across how many different plan sponsors was it? Uh, yeah, it, it was, was like one point six trillion in in assets. In assets, yeah. Two thousand two, two thousand seventeen. Yeah, plan yeah. sponsors. So a pretty large sample. Seven thousand decisions made by two thousand plan sponsors, covering one point six trillion in assets allocated to seven hundred and seventy five unique managers. Over right. fifteen years from yeah, from two to seventeen. So it's 17, yeah, it's pretty rare, representative sample. It's rare to it's rare to find anything good on manager selection in the academic literature um i remember when i was writing the investors paradox there just wasn't a lot to hang your hat on um so when these guys publish something new it's always noteworthy because they've been pretty sensible in the past well and what was it maybe um i think it was 2008 where they published a study on um the persistent performance persistence among manager selection for, for plan sponsors. Right. And that there's that famous chart where they, um, they showed the, the three-year performance of managers before they were selected for investment and the three years of performance subsequent to being selected for investment and the performance in the three years prior to being selected for investment was, was above average or above average. And then the performance, in the three years subsequent to investment were, were below average and were worse than if they had simply stuck with the managers that they had in those sleeves before. Um, so I guess, you know, Goyle and Mahal have, have not over the years been kind to the process of manager selection at plan sponsors, certainly. Um, so what was new in this paper that you that you took out of it, Brian? Um, so they, they did two things. Two things, yeah. So first of all, that 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 08 paper was just brutal. Um, and the funny thing is that you don't see a lot of countervailing arguments. I mean, you see puff pieces from consultants about like their prowess in choosing managers, but there's no evidence. Um, so you'd think that somebody would sponsor some sort of research to some sort of academic who can at least put something out there that says that people, somebody's good at picking managers, it's really nothing. So, you know, the 08 piece was pretty brutal. In this one, they did two interesting things. Um, and I find just, but I find one of them compelling. Um, so the first thing they did was to engage the counterfactual, which is always a tricky thing from a causal logic point of view, like, what, what could have been if you hadn't chose this? And I read the methodology on that. So, you know, very large sample. They looked at a lot of decisions and they were able to collect data on RFPs for particular mandates. And then they can see that a an asset owner chose manager X, but not Y, Z, A, B, and C. Um, and because I, I think most of the data that they're looking at is in the public space, it's public equity, public fixed income, they're able to they're able to measure manager X versus the five others that were in the beauty pageant because you have the funnel you've got a ton and then you get to you get to the finals and they can pick they can see kind of how people did on a post higher basis so, yeah, so because they're public sponsors or public public plans they they need to go out with a formal RFP correct. there's response there's proposals that are sent in response to the RFP so we know who responded. 
there's records of who responded and what their proposals were. And so we can identify what other managers were available to the plan sponsors at the time for them to select from. Is that right? So that's why we were able to have the counterfactual because we're able to see all of the other options that were available at the time in relation to that RFP. Yeah. And see the decisions that they made, right? Yeah. So, I mean, them even trying to do the counterfactual exercise, they get kudos for. Um, I'm guessing when you dig into the methodology and I see in the chat that, you know, our friend Jeremy here is here and I think he's one of the smarter institutional allocators. So, you know, I, I hope he's going to sort of chime in on the chat um, with, you know, more questions and comments. But on this first of two topics, on this topic of counterfactuals, which is sort of part B to the part A that they did in 2008, what they found was that people, um, I should say, um, asset owners or allocators um, did not choose funds that outperformed the others that they passed on. So that in, and of, in itself is, is, is interesting. And whether or not you know, the three-year time period that they looked at or whatever the time period they looked at is 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 right. Um, th that does, to me, count as research progress because I hadn't really seen it done um, with this methodology before. Yep. Um, it, and it might have been done. I, I'm, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, fair and transparent, I'm not looking at this this literature all that much anymore. The, the second thing that they looked at um, is... Um, is the relevance of 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 connection so what you know richard was talking about with network and you know i i can tell many above and below board stories about like you know what was involved with hedge fund due diligence and you know saw some things that you know probably make made my hair curl a little bit but um you know what they wanted to do was see whether uh, asset owners would allocate to people with whom they had um some sort of formal connection with. And on this one, I think they fall pretty flat. I think the answer, I think the question is valuable to answer. Um, these guys who are, you know, in the world of quantitative finance, they're not going to really find data, I would suspect, that's going to be able to evidence these claims very well, no matter what they do. I mean, they were looking at formal, um, they would they would make, you know, um, they were looking at, uh, and I forget, Richard, if you saw that, um, uh, you know, sort of formal, uh, yeah, the relationship science database is based on publicly verifiable data sources, including SEC records, court records, financial statements, and other such hard records. Notably absent are self-reported link linkages and social network mediums such as LinkedIn. I don't really think they have much of a leg to stand on. I mean... And there's nothing untoward about people doing business with those they have met before. I mean, the idea that you would hire a lawyer or an accountant or a consultant or almost anything else in the world of services without having, in some ways, having a connection to them, knowing that they might be trustworthy, all that kind of stuff. So the fact that you're investing with people that you're more connected to, I'm actually surprised that the number's not higher. I think there was sort of a 30% bump in you know connected. Um, but it's not like, you know, you get a, a laminated menu or you go to a train station and there's just one of those big boards and you just sort of pick what you want based on your due diligence. I mean, this is um, complicated. It, it requires asking a lot of questions. 
And it makes sense that the people that you would be connected to would be the ones that you would feel most comfortable receiving those answers and ultimately allocating other uh, other people's money to. So, you know, on the, on the first point, I think they're on to something because um, it resonates. On the second point, um, to the extent that academics can be a little bit naive about investment management, I, I think this is them showing that. So that's fair. And I mean, we, they did acknowledge that most of the um, the betas to some of the relationship variables were um, were meaningful, but not statistically significant. Um, they did show that they were explanatory, right? They explained 15 to 30% of um, subsequent return var variation. But, uh, and then, you know, they tried three different methods. One of them was uh, made stronger assumptions than, than the two others. The one that made stronger assumptions was more explanatory, but the assumptions were more questionable. So, you know, I think, I think they took a, they took a stab at it, but like you yeah. say, it's, it's a, it's just a really difficult thing to evaluate. Um, anecdotally, I mean, Richard shared a, an anecdote that sort of, th that leaned heavily in that direction, but, um, I mean, in your experience, I mean, I, we, we've got Mike and I have anecdotes too. I, I, it certainly resonates to me or with me that, that, um, you know, networking with consultants, networking with, um, uh, invest, the managers that select managers for RFPs, et cetera, is a highly productive activity for investment managers. Um, like it, it, in your experience, is this, you know, is this legit, you know, and without being overly critical and yeah. with all the relevant caveats that you've already mentioned. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the thing about investment managers and there are tens of thousands of them is that they have a craft which they work on every single day and they're trying to do something that they perceive to be valuable. It could be return. It could be risk adjusted return. It could be diversified exposure. It's any number of things. Um, and then you need to tell that story to somebody because the search costs are pretty high um, or the, or the, you know, the discovery costs can be very high, maybe the you know, inverted way of putting it. So there, there's nothing, there's no nepotism, there's nothing untoward about someone who is devoted to their craft, wanting to share with others that what they're doing is valuable. Um, you know, I, and this is documented in the investor's paradox, I did over the course of 14 years, I interviewed something slightly north of 4,000 distinct fund managers. And um, made, you know, in, 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 with whatever evidence would be available after the fact, some, some of those were quote unquote good decisions based on the fact that they made good, good returns and, um, and fit into the portfolio well. And, and, and others were, were terrible. I mean, I, I, because I was responsible for global research, I remember in 06, 07, when the world seemed to be getting just a little bit punky, just as things began to feel weird. Um, and, and we were seeing kind of know, green shoots or black shoots of just not good things. And we were generally conservative in the way we positioned ourselves, the pension funds. Anyway, I was responsible for our Asian investments. So we had zero Asian investments before I joined the firm in 02 and in, in 03. Um, and then we built out a book of probably eight or nine managers over the next five or six years. 
And I found like uh, there was a group called Artradus. Um, I don't know if you met those guys um, way way back when, but you know they were sort of a long vol slash vol arb manager. Um, we spent a lot of time with um, Sockgen and Goldman and others, understanding kind of what the listed and unlisted derivative uh, market was like there. We un- so we triangulated from that direction. We spent an enormous amount of time with the Artradis guys, Australian, born and raised, moved to Singapore, ran their long vol front from there. And, you know, both from a skill point of view, as well as, and we did a bunch of custom quant, you know, analytics on, on their portfolio and their return stream, got to know them well, were introduced by every cap intro group on the planet and spent probably eight to nine months getting to, to know them. And at minimum thought, you know, there was just a ton of convexity in the trade and it would be a good fit. And in 08, you know, they were up like 80 or 90%. And so like on a on an asset-weighted basis, our Asian book in 08 was up. Okay, good for me. Europe, like a disaster. We There were so many people in Europe in 05, 06, or 07 who made this pitch about um, – Hey, we take a private equity approach to public equity markets. We do deeper due diligence. And I loved these guys. Super concentrated, 15 to 20% in a, in a position, plus they're levered, running 80 to 90% long on 200 gross. I mean, like jacked up stuff. Mm-hmm. And they would produce, you remember the, the you know, what Ackman and those guys used to do with their research reports, like 200 pages. Like they knew the flavor of the chewing gum that the CFO liked. There wasn't anything they didn't know. It's like, well, how could these guys be wrong? They all lost like 20 to 40% in 08. Um, and, you know, alpha be damned. It's just like, well, they're long and levered in a down market. They're going to get, they're going to get crushed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so many stories about you get access to these guys and you do your due diligence, but it's doesn't, doesn't, doesn't this fall into the camp? Um, not surprised. Like yeah, you have, you have, sure, a princi- sure. you have a principal agency issue here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the asset owners have one goal and the consulting firms and those in power have a totally different set of goals. And their goal is to, Put together, I mean, it's the probably the oldest trick in finance. Here's the portfolio that I would have provided you over the last five years, and the return looks lovely. And there's the there's the portfolio you had in actual execution. Had you had that person five years ago consulting, there's no way they would have had that portfolio. I mean, this is the oldest bait and switch um, situation, and it's it's pervasive. It's in retail, it's in institutional, and it it speaks to the bias of of the the person person responsible for the OPM, right? Other people's money. Yep. You have a different set of goals that does not align perfectly with the asset owner. And if we want to talk about success stories, or let, let me pause it. Do you, like I think Swenson is an I uh, you know when you, when he talks about in his books how he allocates to different um, strategies and firms, he looks for what does he call it? non-profit maximizing motives. So he's looking for firms that are willing or looking to cap their strategies because they see a limit to the amount of alpha that they may be able to generate. He's looking for them to not be prioritizing, you know, sort of capacity in the way they might 
think about um, the markets. Uh, he's looking for very unique uh, thought methodologies that are, uh, you know, sort of a little bit different. Now, this is, you know, granted, explained in his books. He's one of the more successful guys who's done this. I'm just wondering, is there, I mean, is there any solution other than like, this is the game that everyone just plays? Is this the... Yeah. Well, I mean, to quote Lloyd Benson, like, I know David Swenson and I'm no David Swenson. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But, but what are some positive takeaways, right? Like, what are some, yeah. um, and, you know, wide open to people on the uh, comments, right, who do this for a living and uh, right. make mistakes and have had successes. But, I mean, what are some positive takeaways here for those who, you know, advisors and plan sponsors and, 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 and you know, CIOs and their teams at endowments, a lot of people need to make these types of decisions. What are some best practices and how have those best practices evolved over time? And as people chime in, I, I, you know, Mike's point about the principal agent problem is just spot on in terms of like, it, it's just super relevant. And when you're, you know, I was at a fund of funds, so you have a multi-layered You've, you've multiple principles or multiple agents, depending on how you want to define everybody that's in the food chain, because, you know, keep, like at, at its most extreme, but not uncommon, you would have a pension fund, hire a consultant to hire a fund of funds to hire managers in a portfolio for their end clients, the pensioners. So I don't know who's principal and agent, but there's like a pretty, you know, the tin cans and string telephone game gets pretty, you know, pretty, pretty stretched there. There was no doubt that, you know, when I think about mistakes that I made, um, not really understanding in any deep way what a trader's option was all about. Some of the guys that I advocated for that I pushed to get into the portfolio, they they, they could just run and gun it, you know? They could be long and levered. They could have these super well-researched 200-page books on, like, what this stock is all about. And it either works out or it doesn't. And if it works out, you know, they get the VIG. And if it doesn't, they they shut down and start again or go go, go to a different shop. I, I can't say 20 years ago, I, I was, you know, I, I didn't understand that. You know, on on any in 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 any deep level, um, the positive takeaway, and it's why I wrote the investor's paradox, but it's also why I quit the manager selection business for the most part, is that you can be very careful in the expectations that you set for what the manager can and should provide you over time, and the ability to work with a manager to understand what they're going to be able to do, what they're going to want to do over different types of market environments. It's right there, like in front of you, like to be done. Um, I think I became better at that over time, but, you know, tying back to, you know, conversation we had uh, a few minutes ago as alpha grows into beta over time as we thin slice these markets from equity to the nine style box. And then each, each of the style boxes has tilts. All of a sudden there's no alpha, there's only exposure. I think there is a legitimate question today as to like, what is the nature of manager due diligence, at least in large public markets, we can leave aside some of the structural inefficiencies, Adam, that you referred to, um, which, you know, are always interesting. But in large public markets, like, what are we doing? Are we simply sourcing 
exposures and the ability to be consistent uh, to uh, or, or show fidelity to that exposure? And if so, why wouldn't we just buy an ETF? I, I think um, I think those should be front and centers for allocator uh, allocators now. I, so, I, I think Jared, that's great, but, but okay, go ahead. Ed. Well, I was just going to jump in with, uh, there was some great comments from Jeremy and, and the crowd here that if someone is only listening, they're not, they're not going to get these if they don't have a chance to, to see them. But, you know, alignment is most important. That's what Swenson is talking about. Bait and switch ploy. Yeah. That's something that is, you know, per- pervasive. It happens. So as if you're an allocator, you've got to watch for that. You've got to really think about, is this, is this real? And Adam, we've got that story where, you know, you come in with the three allocators and the, the allocator wanted or the, the investor wanted like, what was it? Five re- plus five unreal. Yeah. And three managers said can't be done. The fourth manager said it can be done, got the money. So, uh, you know, that that's something else as an allocator. You got to be thinking along that those lines and um, just delicate balance between capacity. Certainly, if you're an allocator, you want capacity so that you can continue to add you don't want too much capacity. Again, we come into these yin and yang uh, situations, and um, um, you know the, the the those are the types of um, a well well designed. Super important, right? And I get that. Yeah. And there's and, and not to be too cynical, as perhaps my bent, but you know, I, there's certainly a role for consultants in this, which is not profit motive, um, or there's no there's not really a profit motive by the plan sponsor, right? It's more trying to defray liability for decision making, right? Correct. Exactly right. So how could you how could you invest in this five year portfolio? We know that the, if if you go through asset classes and look at, you know, mean reversion, five year sort of mean reversion and say, what you should be looking through is the 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 managers of the last five years that have done the worst. And you should pick randomly from that group. <laughs> and that would probably give you the opportunity. Now you can can imagine you go in as a consultant and say, here's how I built your portfolio. Yeah, the paper, I think, addresses this point specifically, and it talks about how one of the reasons why people made performance chase in the institutional side is the defensibility. It's the career risk. I mean, these are things that we, we've, we're we well aware of, and however anecdotal our, our knowledge of that is, and we know that that doesn't translate to a plural of data, but we know that everyone is process-driven when you're doing well. And so everybody needs... Uh, uh, to find some justification to invest on something. And so you're doing well. You have a process that resonates with the allocator. The allocator is going to be definitely more inclined. But I wanted to kind of circle back on a point that uh, both Adam and Brian were making about alpha, right? So perhaps if you're on the retail side and you find these uh, systematic sources of alpha, which technically are, are beta, right? But you're, you're, you're able to provide to them and they can't do it on their own. So that becomes alpha to them. But as you go down this rabbit hole and layers deep at the ultimate level, if alpha, as we are describing it here, is just beta, then what is alpha at the ultimate level? Is it timing? Is it well, because we've talked about this timing can be a source of, of alpha as well. And so how do you find alpha at that last layer of uh, sophistication for an investor? Well, yeah, I mean, again, right, it's, it's alpha is kind of what you can't, what you can't access yourself cheaply, right? So it's, it's going to be different for participants in the markets at, at different levels of sophistication and access and size, right? So, um, I mean, for an institutional allocator with their own internal factor desk 
that can replicate the vast majority. And, you know, it's a good factor desk and they've got craftsmen in the chairs and they're doing a reasonable job. The hurdle to demonstrate alpha is going to be larger than for um, maybe some advisors or some retail investors who have neither the size nor the access nor the sophistication to be able to identify um, how to get access to those to those sources of return more cheaply, right? So it's uh, like alpha is going to be different for di- people at different levels of the food chain, right? Oh. Um, I did want to come back to this because I, you know, there, for sure there's a principal agent problem, but let's just take that out of the equation for a second. And and you know, Jeremy's been harping on alignment of interests, which I, I think is you know, it, uh, you can't debate it, right? I think that that's almost self-evident, um, although not well executed, right? So it's a good in well, how do you How do you determine it though, right? We, it is self-evident. If I would like to lose weight, it's self-evident that I should eat less. Totally, yeah. Simple, <laughs> but not easy, right? Agreed. Right. Um, but, but let's assume even notwithstanding that, you've got this issue where very few, if any, managers are coming to, plan sponsors with with proposals that don't where they don't genuinely believe they have an edge right that they don't believe that they have something special to offer so you know how do you so you want to have alignment so great you've got a manager who um you set up the the structure so that you've got special access that they've got limitations on external uh assets You've got great alignment policy in place. The manager tells a good story, but how do you determine whether that manager has genuine skill, right? Are there, you know, I I think there's government's policies that are really good to talk about and are important, but in the end. Yeah, I haven't come up with a good answer. We've got skin in the game. But even then, right? That's not a guarantee. A guy fundamentally, the point is, these guys fundamentally believe they have skill. If they fundamentally believe they have skill, they're not going to mind having skin in the game. No, agreed. But their belief that they have skill doesn't mean they have skill. So, how do you overcome a good story? How do you overcome the, the Goldman Sachs pedigree? You know, like, so much of this is a, is a, well, it's such a huge assumption that you want it. Right. So, so, wow, you're really blowing my mind here because I have to assume away so many of the behavioral mistakes that are nine tenths of the yeah, issues. So, I, I, could, I could hear some people saying, well, no, our government's, our governance structure addresses these issues. Sure. Right. Sure. I, so then, then what we would look for, what we would look for is if that's the case, we would take the number of allocators uh, as of size and ability of, of known, uh, compare whatever their relative skill would be on some sense, and then say, just not by assets, by number of allocations. Did you make allocations to advisors? Like, did you advi- did you go to all Goldman Sachs and those large managers? Or did you, did you actually allocate to some smaller, less known? not known uh, managers in your, in your database. How many of those did you allocate to? That's a really to? good point, Mike, right? And so, so Brian, yeah. we know that emerge or, okay. Yeah. Uh, the research I've seen strongly implies that emerging, small human. emerging managers actually legitimate. There's an edge there. Is that 
harvested in practice? No. And, and I'm not convinced. So, and I'm in the small minority in, in the allocate, well, former allocators world of not ever really being convinced that those small emerging managers had any sort of advantage. Um, I, look, there was there's there's evidence to suggest that they do, but I think it's asset. You know, when you go asset or sub asset class by sub asset class, when you when you go into the world of credit go into the world of, you know, sort of moving along large um, complex capital structures. I don't think small guys have any advantage there. In fact, they have a disadvantage because it's the big players. It's the Angelo Gordons. It's the Blackstones. It's the um, Marathons. I mean, these are older names that I used to truck in. Um, it's all the old Goldman Sachs prop credit guys, the, the gray, gray Wolves and Silver Points and such that had access to deal flow. And so the notion that as an emerging manager, you would have access to those capital stacks with a joke, like you simply wouldn't. Yeah, I think it's more, more. I think the assertion that small, that emerging managers can access edges with, with that just have less capacity. Like if, again, if you're trading like- But I'm gonna push back, I, I never saw that. Like it's, it's, it's not like the small managers were investing primarily in micro caps or smaller small caps and finding edges and scalability that allowed them to do really great things like most small managers you know at at lowest were in nor normal small caps or small to mid caps and sure a, a tpg axon or an sac although no sac is a terrible example because um <laughs> Well, no, I, I don't mean it from an illicit point of view. I mean it because, you know, if there's 100 traders and everybody has their own $50 million book, there's actually a ton of flexibility that's built into that where you can't. So um, I, I just never, and, and Jeremy, I think, is off the call, but, you know, he wrote in the, in the chat, the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, which, you know, I, I, I get think it was it. a joke to my point earlier. Yeah, he, he, he was I don't, I don't, um, I, I just haven't seen that small manager effect really take place because they're not in markets where whatever that size is logically makes any sort of any sort of difference. I'm actually I'm not sure if that's the point that you wanted to hammer I mean, on. I don't I don't know either. I can say that like again, and I've got I can point to lots of anecdotes where, for example, there's you know a, a maybe a double handful of firms that operate exclusively in the Canadian small cap space that have just been killing it. Right, like they've got a maybe they've got a, a capacity of of forty or fifty million tops. Right, right, um, because they're just dealing in a in a space that doesn't have enough liquidity for them to to play larger. Um, I know some some muni managers in Cleveland yeah. that are just crushing it. That you know, I remember after two thousand and eight, there was a huge run on asset back asset back security, especially in Canada, guys, guys raised whatever, 50, hundred million dollars. And then they bought a bunch of asset backs that were on, that they bought on fire sale. They ran the portfolio down over five years. Like there's, there's, there's lots of sort of opportunistic funds run by, by specialists with real niche specializations that happen to be in the right place at the right time. And if you can got, if you got access to that raise, then, you know, that's, that's a legit source of, of alpha, but it's more sort of like you've got a group of specialists with a market dislocation that have 
that are raising capital and they're going to, or you've just got like a perpetually inefficient market like Canadian small caps that, well, especially, you know, especially the, the resource, the resource cap, right. the resource stocks in Canada are famous for this. Like, you know, a good resource manager is going to be connected to the deals. He's going to get early seed deals and he doesn't have to be large to do that. In fact, oftentimes they start a fund at the beginning of the bull market that's brand new and small. Yeah, and then they they get involved in the syndicate, and there's a syndicate of firms that run the the prices up before they get off their shares. Like it's there's a whole racket there, right? But yeah. how about outside the security selection space? Because a lot all of the examples so far that you guys are giving are, are strictly in the security selection space, which mm-hmm. plays a lot to to Brian's point. But how about players that are dealing more in the the asset allocation space, your futures, your global macro, global macro, yeah. Well, I think I think futures um, in that space. I think we would would agree that there are areas that have limited capacity and size is deleterious to that capacity, or it just means that you're spreading it over a larger and larger asset base until such time as it's not really a meaningful um, source of return to the asset base. Size um, matters, just not the way you think it's actually yeah, reciprocal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, the, the every edge has a capacity above which the edge no longer is attractive, right? And you know, I think you can certainly make the case currently in the sort of style premium space that we've exceeded that capacity. Yeah. Right? Um, give it fun. That. Fun flows corrupt, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think that's fair. And and I'd also overlay our earlier discussion of well, what is alpha? And some of it is an informational advantage. Some of it is access. Some of it is just structural stuff that, like, if you can participate. You know, in my personal portfolio, I've got a large allocation to a very small odd lot muni manager. I mean, he he is making multiples of what the MUB um, ETF is making because he's just sort of in there cherry picking all of these random bonds that big guys could never ever even begin to to touch, and that's that that's a good thing. Um, there aren't that many people who want to remain small and do good work and have sort of alpha on their tombstone as opposed to a big dollar sign. Yeah. Swenson Swenson mentions that absolutely verbatim in one of his books. He's looking for non sort of the non maximizer from the asset management business, but these weird uh, uh, types of managers who want that on their tombstone. Right. They want that. That's very small, limited capacity. Those. Now, I don't know how you look for that. It seems to me like, you know, so when we come back to a way. Right. Well, I mean, not always. Certainly those books were written a couple decades ago now. But do you really think that that type of mindset could overcome the principal agent issue we have where you have an unsophisticated board? largely, well, a semi-sophisticated board who's largely relying on the consultant to hedge away a potential director type risk so that it's, it's again, it's there, it's the behavior is being driven by a set of um, uh, goals that are not necessarily congruent with the asset owner. And even, even Swenson, I mean, Swenson is a classic example of what he's looking for. He could make, I'm sure, a, an order of magnitude more in in his compensation if he decided to go to a private hedge fund versus working for Yale, 
Um, and so it's a, it's a tall, it's a tall ask. So what, what does that mean? So in my mind, what it means is the allocator, the asset owner has to be really ever diligent for this. The asset owner is the final arbiter for these decisions. They're not in the sort of pension endowment case to the extent they can be, they should be, and they need to take the steps to educate themselves and they need to understand the, the, the complexity of this. And it's not enough. It's not enough to simply, um, cover your liability um, via a consultant. That's not that's not enough. This goes so, back to your earlier point, Mike, because you just called the allocator the asset owner and you equated those things. But this goes mm. back to the principal agent problem that you were so rightly you're absolutely right. So right. at the end of the day, we're not dealing those two things do not they're not synonymous. Yeah, they're not. And 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 I don't want. I, I, my guess is we're wrapping up shortly. I, I don't want to leave this call without throwing consultants completely under the bus. Maybe you guys don't want. Yeah, to. no, no, no. I, we don't want to either. That's not the point. I guess no, that's no, not the no, point. No, we're just no, highlighting no, the myself. So I okay. want to <laughs> because these you tried, Mike. You tried to say it wasn't meant to be. Let's just have it so I can hear Mike throw them under the bus. Brian, Brian, please. Um, I love it. You know, I might be a fifth level dragonborn rogue. He's a dragonborn. He's who <laughs> has issues with consultants. I know a lot. Many of my friends are consultants. They're very bright. They were. They were your friends. Don't throw all your <laughs> knives here, man. We've got a whole session later where you get to throw your knives, right? I, I, I do have four traps <laughs> in my body. No one even knows what the hell we're talking about. Um, so when we talk about the odd lot muni manager, the Canadian small cap manager. You know who doesn't give a crap about those people? Consultants. You know why? Because they can't put them in multiple client portfolios. So when they deploy their high priced talent to do due diligence on these managers, that is of literally zero interest to them. So I don't want them to come out of this unscathed because if the goal is to drive better results for clients, which I hope is everybody's goal, the fact is that we're not going to get to a lot of managers that are doing pretty good work because they don't offer a scalable solution. And to you know, however you might, however you put Swenson's point, right. about, you know, sort of non, you know, basically do, doing good work for the right reasons and not trying to just line your pockets. Yeah. Um, you know, you do have a somewhat closed loop between asset owners, managers, and consultants. And the circle just keeps going. Um, it's an anti-alpha circle. It's a it, it, that circle is really focused on managing career risk. It's certainly not managed focused on um, you know sort of increasing client outcomes. Do you so, do you think there's any opportunity in the, in in the multi space like where okay so you're or does this include this? This subsumes all of it. So. No matter whether you're trying to build a portfolio of of alts and risk premium stocks and bonds, you just the, the consultants just get it wrong across the board. Or is there some way in which they help with asset allocation or allocation to unique strategies that are? Well, you know, there's a lot of things they do. Like the first thing that they are is that they're an insurance premium because they're who you blame, and in some cases sue when things go wrong. That's fine. Everyone knows that they they are insurance. CYA. Um, and then there's things that happen, and that's first and foremost most important. Beyond that, you've got the asset allocation piece. And I have no I have no insider comment there. There's lots of smart people uh, at a lot of these big firms, and I know them, and they're very thoughtful 
about what the tilt for a pension fund should be in terms of stocks versus bonds versus alts. Great. That, that, that is what it is. And then there is the manager selection piece, which used to be, you know, my, my, my focus. And in there, in that case, you have well-meaning, motivated, you know, individuals who cannot pick up on great opportunities because if you can't, you know, I'm not going to name names. I could name lots of names. <laughs> can't put. Nobody's, nobody's watching. Go ahead. Name some names. It's fine. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> no, I'm um, kidding. Don't do it. Well, I will say, you know, there's. Yeah, but I just finished the thought. If you yeah, can't yeah, put 500 million bucks in this particular manager, it's not worth that firm deploying the assets to not only diligence yeah. them, but to monitor them and keep them on their approved list. Um, it's so true. I never even thought of that. Oh yeah. God, it's horrible. There's other there's other dimensions. Like there's a there's an actuarial dimension, right, for lots of plan sponsors, and and uh, an accounting dimension, and, and that sort of stuff. Which probably there's an active role for for consultants. Um, I mean, look, that I think where we are, right, is that that manager selects is hard. Like the, I, you know, I, I, from my perspective, the Swenson uh, example is more, is not really one of Swenson or his team or geniuses at manager selection so much as they have created a culture that attracts managers that have the qualities that are more likely to deliver outsized performance, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's more of a, it's more of a, culture or governance or, you know, and, you know, notwithstanding a massive bet on America, which has paid off um, versus international, right? If you, I was just looking at the, the current Yale portfolio and noted that uh, while they have a de minimis exposure to U.S. public equities, they have a massive overexposure to um, LBO and venture, which are almost certainly overwhelmingly U.S. focus. So, you know, you've gone from U.S. public equity to U.S. private equity. So great. Obviously, it's been America's few decades. So that's been a massive payoff for Swenson um, and Buffett. But, you know, I, notwithstanding that, I do think that there's an element of just creating a spirit of excellence and governance and alignment and commitment to manager development that attracts the right manager. So it's this like virtuous Mm -hmm. It's this virtual, virtuous circle, um, which probably, you know, full credit probably was designed as a strategy in advance and has paid off. I just don't necessarily want to conflate that with manager selection skill because I'm not sure they're exactly the same thing. I, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. Um, one is one narrow and very deep issue. And then the other one is, not as deep but very broad and has a number of different facets to it and that's that 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 that's totally fine i guess where i put a pin in the current debate is that when we have now the history and the tools and the perspective and the models and the technology to slice the factor zoo in every imaginable way what is manager due diligence because like i i spent um you know, I spent, I don't know, 10 or 15 hours with Dineker Singh in 2005. Global head of prop trading for Goldman Sachs, made a few hundred million bucks, launched 
uh, you know, built TPG Axon into a 10, 15, 20 billion dollar hedge fund, so on and so forth. And it's, hey, hey, tell me stories about stocks that you picked. Okay. In retrospect, it was utter bullshit. What we needed to do was see his record at Goldman, see what he was building at TPG Axon, and just understand the underlying factor exposures that we were purchasing. And if that's the case, and I like Dinneker, and he did a good job for a period of time, but if the case is that we can now slice and dice factor exposures in such a fine-grained way, when we buy a manager, what, what are we actually buying? And, 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 and what is that skill? And, you know, Jason on the chat said, you know, if you throw out beliefs and edge, alpha, risk premiums, how do you think about portfolios? Um, I would throw out edge and alpha and I would think about risk, but I would not ever throw about risk, uh, uh, throw out risk premium. To me, it's about, okay, how, how do you want to take the risk? Um, what, what is it? So for the record, this is dark blue, you know, just cause my camera resolution in contrast is not, you know, <laughs> oh my God, we got Jason's picture up there and everything. How did well, I'm, I'm wearing it's a your YouTube. It's your YouTube picture. And a t-shirt I got on uh, winter break in uh, Cabo last December. So. so is there an argument, I, I guess, perhaps to be made that uh, the illusion of control, this idea that you're talking to managers who and, and, and they have so many war stories about, you know, as you mentioned earlier, knowing the favorite flavor, chewing gum uh, for uh, of the CFO of the company, yeah. that is actually detrimental because it, it it provides you with this illusion that these guys know so much about these companies that you know there's no way they're going to get this part wrong. When at the end of the day, it's all beta, and uh, it, you were just fooling yourself into thinking that you were allocating to someone who knew it or, all. Or Richard, can I can I counter that with maybe you knew that no one was adding value, and so. You thought you'd just give it to a buddy. Well, I, mean, I think you're, now you're just quoting from the paper. So if you want to go down. No, I'm quoting from the paper. <laughs> That's awesome. The record that I am no longer the most cynical person on this call. So I feel like I just won. <laughs> you didn't begin there. I made, a, I made a pact with myself. I told Rodrigo and Mike earlier, I'm going to be a voice of positivity on this call. Yeah, I've been Without surprised so far, Adam, honestly. I, I, I thought you were going into a deep run, rant right off the bat. And you, you, you've held... Well, Corey, before before the call, Hofstein reminded me that I don't need to say a thing. I just need to plant a few seeds, and Brian will rant for the two of us. So, <laughs> oh. was, you know, and Brian was was uncharacteristically restrained. So, you know, Brian, you you proved Corey and I wrong. And Up you until really the point of the consultant, consultant right? Well, until no, I actually, I actually, I, I don't know if it's wrong or just maybe. So he did go 14 minutes without taking a break at one point. I did try. I, was, <laughs> I loved it. I'm like, that is, this hour's going to fly by. Yeah, yeah. That was a good 14, too. I can't, I can't even think past the rage of what I'm going to say to Corey Hofstein. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that. <laughs> Paladin. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, to Eric's point, um, yeah, I forget what bias it is, but it's like the, the familiarity bias or, you know, uh, it, I'm not illusion sure. of control. It's illusion. Yeah, it's related to that, but but yeah, for sure. I mean, the 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 more details you learn about a story, the more mm -hmm. likely you are to think that you have um an edge, right? It's that whole Absolutely. experiment that they did about horse racing, right? Right. And Steve's on Steve's on too. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. All the sports betting guys, Steve can regale us with that. Yeah. You give them more data. They feel more confident, but they're no more accurate. The, exactly. you know, the horse handicappers. Yeah. Right. That is very, That's very well documented. Oh, it's true. That's true. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for that. Um, so we're at a minute and hour, sorry, an hour 11. Anyone got any more rants? I want to, you know, I want to end on a high note. Do one more 14 minute soliloquy. <laughs> wow. can, can you sing it? Or? Stalagmite. Go. <laughs> it goes up. <laughs> and the stalagmite goes down. Things you learn. There you go. All right. Well, look, happy Friday afternoon, everybody. Thank you again. Brian, thanks for joining us. Lots of yeah, great insights time, and good fun. Thank you, guys. And um, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.